Our first Bible reading is from Ezekiel 33, verses 1 to 9. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, When I bring the sword against a land, and the people of the land choose one of their men and make them their watchmen, and he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people, then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not heed the warning, and the sword comes and takes their life, their blood will be on their own head. Since they heard the sound of the trumpet but did not heed the warning, their blood will be on their own head. If they had heeded the warning, they would have saved themselves. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin. But I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways, that wicked person will die for their sin, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person to turn from their ways, and they do not do so, they will die for their sin, though you yourself will be saved. And our second reading is from Acts 20 verses 17 to 35. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility, with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage rules will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you, night and day, with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Thank you, Mel. Good morning, everyone. 
You hear me okay? Yep. Great to be here. Great to be stepping into Acts uh, chapter 20. So leave your Bibles open to there and you've got a handout with some things to fill out um, to make sure you, you stay awake. Um, why don't I pray and then we'll, uh, we'll kick straight into it. Let's pray. Our great Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, for your word to us. It is a, truly a lamp to our feet. Uh, Father, thank you for what we'll learn today about leadership in your church. Uh, we thank you for our great leader, the Lord Jesus. Help us uh, to look to him, to be like him uh, this day, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we're looking at uh, Acts chapter 20 and uh, Paul's speech to the leaders at Ephesus, the churches in uh, uh, Ephesus. And uh, I want to suggest to you there's, there's an idea in the passage. Uh, it's a very small phrase, but it's a really, really big idea that undergirds everything Paul's about to say. It kind of makes sense of his instructions to leaders. It actually is what drives him in his life. And I've put up on the screen four pictures because these four pictures have something in common, uh, which is that idea in the passage. Now, talk to the person next to you. Let me tell you what they are firstly. Great Barrier Reef, Queensland. Everyone knows about the Great Barrier. Who's been there? Heaps of people have been there. My wife, Natalie. Everyone knows Natalie? A newborn... She's embarrassed already. Newborn baby and the Lakes Church. Talk to the person next to you. What do they all have in common? And it's... Uh, be careful what you say. What do you reckon? Growth? You're saying that Natalie is growing. You should be very careful what you say. <laughs> they're all alive. That's, they're all gifts from God. Absolutely. They're all beautiful. What? That's, that's the great answer. <laughs> um, it's not the word I had in mind. The word I had in mind was they are all precious. They're all very precious. So the Great Barrier Reef is becoming extinct. It's really precious. The whole world recognises um, climate change, yeah, severe weather. If we don't look after this thing, we're not going to have it uh, for very much longer. So it's very precious. Natalie is precious in a thousand different ways. I won't bore you with all the details. Um, a newborn baby is precious. Um, I remember our first daughter being born very, very clearly. I remember taking her home in the car. I remember buying a new car, moving from the two-door to the four-door, buying the, my first Toyota Camry, a sure sign that you're going to become a father. I remember putting her in the back seat in the brand new capsule, uh, driving home very, very carefully, very slowly, about 20 k's under the speed limit. Never done that before, never done it since. Um, we got home and we even took a photo as we were taking her out of the car and then we took another photo as we are going across the threshold uh, into the front door of our house. Just such a precious moment. Our first daughter. So precious. Now here's the other thing that's really precious on it. Our church, the Lakes Church, is precious to God. And that's, that's the idea behind uh, Paul's speech. So have a look at verse 28. Here's the big idea. He says, instruction, be shepherds of the church of God, talking to the leaders which he bought with his blood. Really, really important point. 
What is it that drives Paul? What is it that makes sense of this sober moment where he speaks to the leaders? Be leaders of God's church. Which church? The church that he bought with his blood. The church God's only son gave up his life for. He's not talking about any old organisation. He's talking about the precious church of God. Incredibly precious to God, incredibly precious to Paul. Paul gets it. And so today we're going we're gonna to talk about leadership, but you actually have to get that first. So we're going to talk about leadership, which applies to us as pastors this morning. Uh, we're going to talk about leaders, ministry leaders in our church, uh, growth group leaders, youth leaders, kids' church leaders. If you're a leader of your family, if you're a parent or a grandparent, you're a leader of children, your small church at home. Or even more widely, isn't it? It actually applies to all of us because the question is, who do we sit under? Who do we listen? Who do we follow? How do we choose leaders? That's all going to be encapsulated in what Paul says this morning. All very relevant to us. But let's just appreciate this first point on your outline there. It's what's the church that we're leading? The church Jesus bought with his own blood. Next slide there. Very, very important. Don't ever forget. That's the key point, right? We often talk about salvation in all kinds of ways, don't we? What, what's happened to us? We've moved from darkness to light. Uh, we've been redeemed from an empty way of life, now a life of hope. How did that happen? That only happened because the Lord Jesus laid down his life. That only happened because Jesus was publicly humiliated. The one who was sinless became sin for us. Uh, the one who um, is the greatest of all was crushed in our place so that we would never be crushed. Uh, how did the church of God in all its beauty and grace get formed? Only because of Jesus' death. Great, great cost. God sent his only son. He loved the world so much that he sent his only son. Very, very costly for very great gain, the church so precious. Can you see how precious the church is? We've just got to keep reminding ourselves this is not any organisation, any group. It's not the football club. It's not, a, it's not a school. It's not any of those good things. It's, it's the church of God. Incredibly precious. Let me read to you 1 Peter 1.18. Captures it really beautifully. It's not with perishable things such as silver or gold. That's, that's costly, isn't it? If it was built with silver or gold, that is, that is precious. No, no, it's not from that that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect. So just before we talk about leadership, I've just got to ask you, do you get that? Do you get that precious, beautiful, a costly sacrifice for this group of people, us, the church of God, I was thinking about what does it mean to be something to be precious. It's actually, it was bought at great cost, wasn't it? Um, I was thinking about the drought uh, and thinking about the farmers. Why is it they, they go through so much pain and drought, much more than we all ever feel it? Now, part of it's just so obvious, isn't it? It's their livelihood. Um, it's their family. It's their whole communities are caught up in the economy. They've poured lots of money into their farm. Uh, it's demoralising uh, to be totally out of control. But it's actually much bigger than that, isn't it? 
the, the farm is precious because my blood, sweat and tears went into that farm. And the blood, sweat and tears of my father and grandfather and great-grandfather built that farm. And now I'm going to have to walk away from it. That is precious because it was bought at such a, such a cost. And that's what Paul's saying about the church, this little phrase, bought with the precious blood of Jesus. Now, Paul totally gets that. Paul is driven by that. That's what makes him passionate for the gospel, passionate about the church. That's what makes him a great Christian leader. And that's what helps him and motivates him to protect, to feed, to care, to teach the church as he realises God has bought this church. Uh, God is the leader of this church and I've been put as a leader under him. I'm one of, he's entrusted it to human leaders. And now Paul's passing the baton on to other human leaders. He's actually meeting with the elders at the, uh, of Ephesus. And there's this serious moment, isn't it, where he passes on his wisdom. He says, this is what it means to be a leader. This is what it means to pastor God's people. It's a somber moment because it's his last words. It's actually emotional. They, they weep. It's a weighty speech. Uh, as he says, imitate me. Do it the way I did it, as he imitates the Lord Jesus. Well, before we unpack the speech, let's remind ourselves where we are in the uh, journeys of Paul. Uh, hopefully it hasn't been too confusing for you. This is Paul on his third journey. Uh, so this on the screen is the return of the third journey. So you might be a little bit confused because last week, we, we, in chapter 19, a lot's happened since then. Uh, in chapter 19, Paul was in Ephesus, but he's since returned to Jerusalem, and then he's head back out again, and this is the return journey uh, that he's now on in, in chapter 20. He's, he sets out again to Macedonia over to the far left of the map, and now he returns to Jerusalem. Uh, he joins the ship at Assos, uh, just down from Troas, uh, verse 16 of chapter 20 tells us he comes down the coast. Can you see the place Miletus? Uh, down the coast of uh, modern-day Turkey. And interestingly, he sails past Ephesus. Uh, that's curious, isn't it? Because Ephesus was a place he spent a lot of time. Ephesus is a place where he would have had lots of friends. He did lots of ministry. Um, but he's keen to return to Jerusalem before Pentecost. Uh, he's on a mission. I reckon it's one of those moments where Paul says, must have said to himself, gee, it'd be nice to go to Ephesus. So many brothers and sisters there to encourage, see the fruit of the work that God's uh, brought as a part of the mission. But there's an urgency. That would be nice, but here is the urgency of the mission. Uh, we must press on. And so he presses on. And that's why he heads to Jerusalem, but only goes to Miletus. I reckon it's the same thing that's happening with um, Eutychus when he falls out the window. Did you remember that story this week in Growth Group? Uh, just at the beginning of the chapter, we didn't read it out uh, for the sake of time, but um, Eutychus falls out the window because Paul's been preaching all night. Now, I'm sure he would have loved to stay in Troas for more than a week. I'm sure he had lots of things to tell them. Uh, it's not ideal that Eutychus falls out the window. Um, but again, he doesn't have the time. He needs to sp preach up till midnight, then during the night, for the sake of the mission, of the shortness of time, uh, he makes that decision. Uh, such is Paul's, Paul's thinking about the gospel. 
uh, as he presses forward. So now he's at Miletus in the middle of the map and he's called the Ephesian elders out from Ephesus to meet him there and talk to them about leadership. Now it's interesting, the different titles, you know, the, you notice the different titles that uh, Paul gives leaders in this passage. Uh, we, we're just used to calling leaders leaders or pastors sometimes. Um, Paul used a number of different words up on the screen there for you. The first one uh, is elder or presbyter and it comes from the word presbyteros. That's uh, where we get the word Presbyterian. Um, so it's actually the Jewish idea of an elder, an older man, a mature man in the synagogue, reading the scriptures, teaching the scriptures. Um, so we get part of our idea of church leadership from that heritage. Uh, another word he uses is overseer uh, or episkopos or bishop. Uh, so it's where the Anglicans get the word uh, episcopalian uh, form of government with bishops. Uh, but again, it's, it's actually from a, a government term, an overseer, someone has responsibility of a region, a people in that region. Or the other word he uses is shepherd, um, the agricultural word, very familiar to the people of the first century that you know, the herdsman, the shepherd who, who cares for the sheep, a very graphic image, isn't it, of care and love and protection. Uh, and it's where we get the word from the uh, Latin, pastor. It just means shepherd, uh, a shepherd of people and so just to note that Paul uses all those terms interchangeably and Hebrews 13 he just uses the word or the writer of the Hebrews use the word leader and so I don't think we're to make too much of the actual word as if we have to have all those words in place uh, to be a faithful church I think the idea is there is a role a very significant role under God of someone who takes care of God's people who leads them protects them teaches them um, whatever you want to call them. Uh, we, we call them leaders or pastors. Now, what, is, what does Paul say in his speech? He says two things uh, there on your outline. The first thing he tells them is the how of leadership. The second thing he tells them is the what of leadership. And that should be of interest to us straight away. It's not just Paul saying, here's the job, the what. He's actually saying how you do it is just as important as what you do. So the how of leadership Have a look in verse 18. He says, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. See, how I lived, how I conducted myself is a really, really important part of leadership. How he served them, uh, how he lived in their midst, they were to imitate that way of life as well. And three, three things, I think, in the passage, in his speech, he identifies. Firstly, in verse 19, he says, I serve the Lord with great humility. Great humility. Uh, that was key to the way he lived. Uh, a humble life. Uh, Paul's not saying he's any more special. He's not a notch up from every other Christian. He's the apostle of the Lord Jesus, but he's just like you and I. Uh, he's saved by grace. You know, it's Paul who actually says, I am the worst of sinners, saved by the Lord Jesus, forgiven. Uh, I've had the the grace of God demonstrated in my life more than anyone. I am a humble man. Humble because he sits under the word of God that he actually teaches. Um, And it's interesting, isn't it, that this idea of being a humble leader that's so critical to being a Christian leader is actually an idea that 
those who aren't Christian also recognise, even in business. Um, so I came across this book, uh, Good to Great, Jim Collins. I haven't read it, but I've heard a lot about it. Uh, I read a summary on it. And one of the points, so, so it's just a book about how come there's, there's lots of great companies, uh, sorry, there's lots of good companies, but how come some become great? Uh, how come some make it uh, to that top end? And one of the things the author identifies on great companies is that they have humble CEOs, that the person at the top of the organisation, the man or woman at the very top of the organisation, is not proud, but is a humble, serving leader. That's interesting, isn't it? Um, that business would identify that. Now, here's what the article said. It said, humble leaders are more modest, emotionally stable, eager to learn. Unsurprisingly, they're less likely to display self-aggrandizing traits such as narcissism. Perhaps most telling is the finding that companies and teams led by more humble individuals perform better. So they actually can trace it to results. Teams, companies make more money. But here's the thing it ends with. But despite humility being good for business, what do you think they're going to say? It's extremely difficult for CEOs, CEOs to be genuinely humble. They're saying, it works, that's what you need to be, we just find it really hard to find a humble CEO. Um, now, that should never be the case for Christian leaders, shouldn't it? There is every reason in the world to be humble, not just as a Christian leader, but to be a Christian. How can you be a Christian and not be humble? That doesn't make sense. Um, what is a Christian? A Christian just says, says, I'm someone who's a sinner. I've, I need to lean on the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. I am saved, I am precious to God only because of the grace of God. And, so, and, and Christian leaders need to exemplify that in their lives. We're following in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus. What has Philippians 2 said? He was the greatest one. And yet, what did he do? He humbly uh, became obedient to death, even death on a cross for us. That's our leader, and that's the person we follow with great humility. It actually models the gospel we preach, doesn't it? I mean, how can you preach the gospel that says you need to humble yourself before God when you haven't humbled yourself before God? How can you preach that it's all about grace, it's nothing about you, when you haven't realised that yourself? Humility is so key. You cannot be a leader in the church if you don't, aren't prepared to be humble. Now, what's the second thing? Second thing on your outline there, Paul serves with tears. Uh, also in verse 18, he says, I serve with great humility and with tears. So there's Paul, the father of the family, uh, the leader who cares for his people. Um, he's not the distant one, is he? He hasn't kept people at a distance. He's not professional. He's not protecting himself you know, with safe emotional barriers between him and them. And, and, and of course, we know there's wisdom as we lead uh, sustainably in that. But there is a kind of leadership that says, just get on with the job. Don't involve yourself in people's lives. Uh, don't get emotionally attached. Um, it's just not Christian leadership. It might work for other jobs but it will not work as, you le as, as people lead God's church. 
See, what's Paul? Paul's actually bound up with his people, isn't he? Uh, when they're going well, he, he goes, yeah, I'm, I'm rejoicing with you. When they are struggling, he is grieving. He's genuinely filled with joy when they're doing well. He, he says to the Thessalonians, For now I really live knowing you are standing firm in the Lord. See, I, I, was, I was in grief, I was worried, I was praying, but now I live knowing that you are doing well. Well, what does that all mean for us? Great humility, serving with tears. I reckon that's the kind of leaders we want across our church, isn't it? Uh, people who are humble, servants of Jesus, people who care, people who get that it's not just a job. So if it's just a job, you've got to stop doing it, haven't you? It's actually about people. It's actually about caring for people. If your heart's not in it, then you can't do it. It doesn't matter how good people think you are. It's actually a ministry of love and service done with emotion and tears. It's about investing your life into people's lives, isn't it? It's about carrying the burdens of the people that you're leading. And I know that's the case for us as pastors on the staff team. I know that's the case for Dave. I know that's the case for me. That there is genuine concern, genuine tears, prayers, heartache, joy. It's a great privilege, but it's actually a hard job. And, and, and sometimes we've thought, what, what makes it so hard? That yes, it is a joy. Yes, it is a privilege. But why does... Let me talk about Dave, not me. Um, why does Dave suffer? It's because he cares, isn't it? That's why a leader suffers, because they actually care. If you, much, much easier if you don't care. Uh, much, much easier if you don't get involved in people's lives. Much, much easier if you don't... Um, you just think about it as a task. Just think about it as a job. But that's not what it is. This is about loving and caring for people. Because the church is precious. Precious to God and should be precious to us. It's the idea that Tom gave us earlier, isn't it? It's the idea of family. That it's not an organisation. It's not a business. It's a family. uh, That we are shepherding. That we are leading. And it's a big family too, isn't it? It's a big family such that the pastors, the paid leaders can't individually care for everyone. And so we need lots of leaders. We need lots of mini-pastors, if you like. We need growth group leaders, and we do have a great group of growth group leaders, don't we, who actually care for you, who actually wrestle with your uh, growth, who worry for you, pray for you, encourage you. That's, that's the kind of people that we want. Uh, that's what makes us a family. Uh, led by godly leaders who care and who serve with great humility and great and with tears. Well, what's the third, the third idea? The third idea is so it's great humility, tears. The third one is Paul serves with the aim to finish the race. Uh, that's a beautiful image, isn't it? It's a, it's a challenging image. Listen to those incredible words, verse twenty-four. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race 
and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. That's a, that's a great image, the, the image of a race, that you're in a race. A uh, great image for leaders. It's actually a great image for all Christians. Isn't it? It's the image that uh, the writer to Hebrews again, Hebrews chapter 12 uses, run the race with great perseverance. Uh, so it applies to all of us that when you're in a race, what matters is the finishing line. That's where your eyes are. That's where you're heading. And all kinds of costs will come up along the way. It will take endurance. Uh, it will hurt. Uh, it will require training. Um, but isn't it great? It is an image not of a sole athlete, but actually an, of athletes running together, encouraging one another to run that race. Now, when you think of an athlete on the Central Coast, who do you think of? Especially if you support the Mariners. Who do you think of? Usain Bolt. Usain Bolt. There he is. The picture of fitness, isn't it? The muscle, um, the athleticism, the showmanship, the talent. Um, is that who you think of when you think about the Christian race? Because one, one of the things with Usain, he was in the, in the paper this week and they, they showed his penthouse in Gosford. Part of that image is the image of prestige, isn't it? And success and popularity. Uh, he's famous. But I don't think that's the image at all that Paul has in mind. I hope that's not the image you have of the Christian life. Uh, it's not even, the, the sprint doesn't even work, does it? It's not a sprint, it's not over in 10 seconds. The race that Paul's got in mind is a much, much longer race. It's a less prestigious race. Uh, it's one where, because it goes on for so long, you are going to be tested even more. You're going to be more tempted to give up. You've got more chance of injury. It's actually the image of the marathon runner. So have a look at this picture. This is a picture of John Stephen Aquari, um, the Tanzanian marathon runner. This is him in the 1968 uh, Olympics, humbly limping into the stadium. And he came into the stadium over an hour after the winner. He'd fallen over during the race. He'd picked himself up. He's, you can see the, the bandages on his leg. He comes into the stadium. There's only a few thousand people left in the stadium. So people have actually gone home. They've had the medal ceremony. The cameraman had to reset up um, to capture him coming into the stadium. There's a small uh, crowd there at the end who cheer him. And when he was interviewed later and asked why he continued running, this is the famous words. He said, my country did not send me 9,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 9,000 miles to finish the race. And that's the picture, isn't it? Long, hard, um, humble, uh, sometimes limping, staggering along, uh, not prestigious, not because everyone's watching, uh, but with the goal of finishing in the, in the Lord's strength. That's the picture of the Christian life. That's the picture Paul has of ministry, trusting Jesus all the way 
to the end. And when you have that mentality, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? He says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. That's an incredible statement, isn't it? I mean, that, that is the very opposite of what I hear people saying today. Not, I consider my life worth nothing, but they say, my life is everything to me. My life is the most important. Paul says the opposite. No, my life is nothing to me. It doesn't matter about me. It's not about me. It's about running this race in God's strength for Jesus. And particularly if you're a leader. And because he's running that race, it's long, it's hard, the finishing line is uh, up ahead, he can discount himself. He can put up with all kinds of hardships and difficulties, knowing where he's heading, that last, that finishing line. So there it is, finish, uh, running like it's a race, uh, is how. Now what about what? So it was with great humility, with tears, running like a race, but what is he doing? Uh, have a look in verse 20. It's simply preaching, isn't it? What does Paul do? He proclaims, he preaches. So look at verse 20. You know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. Or verse 21, he declares, he declares the gospel uh, to both Jews and Greeks. He testifies in verse 24. Part of the idea of the race as he goes, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And he warns. Did you notice the warning passages? He warns his people and he calls them to warn their people. Uh, it's like the faithful watchman in Ezekiel 33 that, that Mel read out. It's actually your responsibility as a leader to sound the alarm, to blow the trumpet so that people might take heed and, and listen and, war- and be warned and turn and God holds that watchman accountable for sounding the alarm he doesn't hold us accountable for people's responses but he does hold us accountable have they heard have you sounded the alarm the faithful watchman be like that verse 31 he, he says be on your guard remember that for three years I've not s- stopped warning you each of you night and day with tears see Paul wants his leaders to be Um, caught up in this warning, shepherding, leading, preaching. Uh, It's a beautiful image of shepherd, isn't it? Be a shepherd. Be someone who cares for the sheep, um, loves the sheep, chases the sheep, rounds the sheep, goes looking for lost sheep, uh, encourages the sheep, feeds the sheep, protects the sheep, all under the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus. But that is a responsibility, isn't it? Uh, To keep doing that. And I take it, it's shepherding by teaching. It's not two, he's not talking about two different things. Teach, someone can teach, someone can shepherd. It's actually the shepherd will teach. And the person who's teaching is actually shepherding. Because that's how you feed, that's how you protect the sheep, God's precious sheep. There it is, Paul declaring, teaching, testifying, warning, being the shepherd. And notice what he preaches. He preaches... He says, I'll preach anything that would be helpful to you. I'll preach, I preach the whole word of God. I didn't just take out bits and pieces. I didn't just preach you the popular parts or the parts that people agree on. I preach the whole word of God. And notice too, he says, I preach publicly and I preached house to house. So I take it, he's saying, 
Yeah, sometimes we have a wrong view of preaching, don't we? That preaching is just what I'm doing now. But preaching is proclaiming the word of God to people. And so that happens in all kinds of contexts across our church, doesn't it? Yes, it's here on Sunday. It's in our small groups. It's one-to-one. It's in our kids' church. It's in our youth ministry. It's men and women and kids. And it's how God feeds his church as people proclaim the word of God. And two, two things particularly he preaches. Uh, verse 24, repentance is the first one. He says, I declared to both Jews and Greeks that you must turn to God in repentance and faith and have faith in our Lord Jesus. See, that is essential to actually call people to turn to God. Uh, that's not a popular thing to do, is it? To call people to repent, to change your thinking, to say that you're wrong. And yet you need to turn to the Lord Jesus and rest on him. That's a humbling thing. But that's what leaders are called to do, to to preach repentance, essential for salvation, essential for the church to grow. And what's the second thing he preaches? Well, he warns, doesn't he? He preaches that savage wolves are coming. Have a look in verse 29. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I've not stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. That's a sober warning, isn't it? That false teachers will come. Not might come, will come. Savage wolves uh, who look like Christians, even in our midst, be aware. He warns he, to protect. How will they operate? Well, what's the great weapon of the false teacher? How does someone attack the church? It's by distorting the word of God, isn't it? It's by twisting God's words, verse 30, that they might lead disciples astray. It's actually the opposite of a faithful teacher. The faithful teacher is setting forth the truth plainly, The false teacher is twisting or distorting the word of God. It's actually to uh, attack the church is to attack that supply line, the word of God, the bloodline, where the church feeds and grows and has come to life. You, you, You mess with that, you will mess and damage the church. And we often think attacking the church is persecution, but persecution strengthens the church as they rest on God's word. It's distortion of the word of God that's the really dangerous thing. Changing the gospel, distorting the Bible so that people won't know God. And so what is Paul, he just does the opposite, doesn't he? I'm going to set forth the truth plainly. I'm going to preach, I'm going to um, testify, I'm going to speak the truth um, so the church might grow. And, and his whole life is caught up in that task. Now this week I was trying to think of what is an example of a job where people someone is completely caught up in their job and they have to be. And I was asking my daughters and they said a pastor, which is correct. But I was trying to get at what's another job that you can think of that's like that, that you can't just do it nine to five. It's actually you caught up in the work uh, because of its importance, because it requires your life and your words and everything. Hard to think of that one. You might think of a better one, but here, here's what I thought of was, the captain 
of a ship, at least while he's on deck on the voyage, uh, it's not just a job, is it? It's not just the job of getting the boat from one port to the next port. He's actually got responsibility for people, hasn't he? Uh, Yes, he wants them to have a good time. Yes, cruise ship, they might be on holidays. But at the end of the day, all those people need to come safely home. And so if there's a danger on, on on board, he needs to sound the alarm, doesn't he? He needs to warn, he needs to start the rescue and he'll get the crew to mark off every person on board. Uh, He'll search, he'll get every cabin checked and searched. He's responsible for every person under God that they return safely. Apparently, I don't know whether they do it anymore, but apparently when an SOS call went out from the captain, the responder used to say, how many souls are on board? You know how many passengers are on board? But how many souls under God are we talking about? Passengers, crew, captain, everyone. Um, the captain has responsibility. And that's, what, that's how Paul sees it, isn't it? Being charged with the responsibility of these people safely as God's precious church. That's Paul's responsibility. That's our responsibility as Christian leaders. Warning, protecting, growing disciples right to the end. And why? Well, because the church is precious, isn't it? Because Christ died for this church. And that, that makes a great Christian leader. The person, that's what makes Paul so passionate. That's why Paul gives his whole life, because he actually gets that, doesn't he? He totally, you're in, under no illusion that he gets that. He gets that Christ died for this church. This is a costly, precious church. And we actually all need to get that, don't we? We're not going to give ourselves to ministry. We're not going to give ourselves to leadership. We're not going to give ourselves to anything in church if we don't get that. And can I say, I I think that's why some of my friends who aren't yet Christian get surprised when I tell them what we're doing at church uh, or when they ask me what we're doing at church or what goes on and they're actually surprised. Actually, here's what they're surprised. They're surprised by when I tell them people, young adults, are actually giving up good jobs and careers to become church leaders. That surprised them. Why would you do that? But that's because they don't yet get that Christ died for the church. This is an incredibly important church, incredibly important role. They're surprised that people actually give money to the work of mission. And church, They're actually building a ministry centre. And you're not getting money from anywhere else. This is your church who's committed and sacrificially given. They don't understand it because they don't yet realise how important and how precious church is. They're surprised that retirees actually give up their retirement to serve the Lord Jesus in ministry. They give lots of energy and time. They're surprised that we have... Ministries like the Helping Hands ministry, someone's sick, gets meals, someone is babysitting kids, all that kind of stuff, because they don't get how precious God's church is. Now, before we we wrap up, who do you think are the most vulnerable people in church? As Paul talks about shepherding and protecting and teaching, who are the most vulnerable sheep? 
Well, some of the most vulnerable sheep are new sheep, aren't they? New Christians. We actually need to love and care for them, teach them well, disciple them well, because they're hearing all kinds of different things about the Christian faith. Who else is vulnerable? I reckon the, you're vulnerable if you don't think good Bible teaching matters. Uh, that's a vulnerable position. That's a dangerous position to be in because you'll just accept any teaching. Uh, you're vulnerable if you th- value entertainment over truth, popularity over truth, uh, feeling good over truth, um, because they, they are great things for savage wolves to use to draw us away from the truth, aren't they? You're vulnerable if you think, actually, isn't Christianity all the same? Isn't it just different flavours? Can't you just pick and choose? No, no, no. Paul's saying there is truth that the church is built on. Um, look to the word of God. Look to leaders who will teach and preach and live that word of God. That's, that's our lifeline. Uh, not everyone who stands up and says they're Christian is Christian. Uh, there are wolves and savage wolves. Um, so let's care for each other who are vulnerable. So what have, what have we learnt this morning as we wrap up? And then I'm going to pray for us as a church. Um, Paul is unashamed about the role, isn't he, of leaders. Yes, the great shepherd, Jesus, is our great king and leader, but God has entrusted human, weak, humble leaders of his church. What does Paul do? He warns about savage wolves. He, he preaches repentance. He preaches publicly and from house to house. Uh, he serves uh, with great humility, with great passion and tears. He runs a race like a marathon runner for the long haul. And why does he do it all? Because the church is precious. Because Christ died for the church that he leads. Let's pray. Our great Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you've given up your Son uh, for us. That in his death and resurrection... Uh, You've forgiven us our sins. You've created this precious group of people, uh, humble servants before you, people who are washed, people who are cleansed by your blood. Uh, Father, help us to appreciate uh, what you've done, how precious the church is to you. Help us to give ourselves with new energy. Help us to take seriously the role of leading and challenging and shepherding preaching and teaching others. Uh, Lord, uh, continue uh, to give us faithful leaders. Uh, Continue to warn us and protect us to the leaders that you've given us. Uh, Continue to uh, protect the ministry of the word as you do your work in our midst. Uh, For Jesus' sake. Amen.